0: Last week, Russian jets started carrying out airstrikes in Syria. After a military buildup in Bashar al Assad's western coastal heartlands, Moscow's intervention has brought a new dimension to an already catastrophic civil war driven by internal and external state and non state actors. Shahram Agamir spoke with Omar Dahi and asked him why Russia has decided to embark on direct military intervention in Syria. Omar Dahi is an associate professor of economics at Hampshire College. He also serves on the editorial committee of the Middle East Report and is co-editor of the Syria page for Jedaliya e-magazine.
1: Well, I think it's important to put Russia's direct military intervention into Syria in the context of four years since the start of the Syrian uprising in 2011, four years of external military intervention by a variety of regional and international forces. So this current military intervention is the latest in the line of this long list of interventions. I think what is happening is that there are several dynamics at play. What we've seemed to be witnessing is a brand new phase of the conflict. And this phase will be heading towards, in my opinion, some sort of settlement and If you follow the news emanating from the region, not the one that's necessarily covered internationally, but at least in the region, there's been a lot of talk about movement towards some sort of political settlement. And I think Russia is trying to forcefully put its stamp on the country so that it will be a major force to be reckoned with and will have a big say in determining what happens next in the next phase And we'll have a major seat at the table in that sense. So their endgame, I think, uh, it's too soon to tell exactly, but I think it's very ambitious. It's more ambitious than simply defense of the military base, and it's more ambitious than weakening ISIS, given what they've done in the past few days, the bombings and the targets of the bombings. They're trying to go after all the armed groups in Syria that are not government and at this point, not ISIS either, to weaken them greatly or to dismantle them or to destroy them. Of course, this is what they ostensibly are going after, military bombing, whether it's Russia, the U.S. supposedly is targeting ISIS or not ISIS, but of course civilians die in the process. But I think their endgame is pretty ambitious, which is, along with Iran dictating the next phase of the conflict and bringing Syria under direct or increasing Russian control. Whether they'll be successful in doing that, I'm not sure, but I think that's what they have in mind.
2: Two weeks ago, Mr. Putin made it clear that his government's main goal was to protect the Syrian state, as he put it. A seemingly expression of concern for the unraveling of what is left of the Syrian state. What is your assessment of the current Syrian state?
0: Well, that's
1: a good question. I mean, the idea of preserving the Syrian state is something that initially framed the basic parameters of what was called the Geneva process. So if you go back to June 2012 and what is now known as the Geneva I Accords, those accords basically said very directly that there has to be a preservation of the Syrian state. They didn't say anything about Assad or the fate of Assad. And they left many other details of exactly how the political transition will take place to be determined later and in many ways that set up the possibility of a civil conflict to ensue after that to sort of determine, you know, who would be shaping the contours of that settlement in detail. But the point is that the idea was to prevent a complete collapse of state institutions. And this is something that many countries seemingly learning from the disastrous destruction of the Iraqi state, seemingly learning the lesson. In fact, what has happened is that since Geneva 1, you've had a great deterioration of the Syrian state and state institutions. War, the violence, the destruction has brought the Syrian state to near collapse. And you also have to add on, of course, the economic sanctions that have been slapped against Syria in terms of weakening the capacity of the state to respond to societal demands, which are now increasing. And I'm here I'm talking about state institutions that have to do with the economic bureaucracy, the agricultural bureaucracy. I'm not talking about the army and the security apparatus that are bombing and engaging in the fighting and killing people. I'm talking about sort of basic institutions that are trying to pay salaries, that are trying to provide health care, education, and so on. And those have actually shown a very impressive resilience. I mean, they were predicted to be collapsing. They didn't collapse. People kept showing up for work. People kept delivering and doing the jobs that they were supposed to do, despite the fact that there was a war going on. And even in areas that are outside the government control, the government still pays the salaries of its workers, in fact.
2: How does that happen?
1: Well, they're basically coordinated in many ways, which... uh, uh, with the armed groups in those territories, uh, the armed groups allow this to happen for a variety of reasons, some of which has to do with that fact that many state employees are technocrats. They know how to run the flour mill, or they know how to run some of the infrastructure that's there, so they need them. They basically are provided in cash from a central location, and the workers come and pick it up. So there's a reality on the ground where, despite the fact that there's a war going on, the proliferation of militias and different groups meant also that they need to deal with each other. In some ways, they deal with each other in that type of exchange. Some of it is illicit exchange. Some of it is exchange of energy because many of these armed groups control oil and natural gas resources. So there's a lot of that taking place uh, on the ground as well. But the reality of the matter is that the state has suffered, and I think a lot of the discussion of the conflict really frames Assad as if the issue is Assad himself. And in many ways, this has become a way of distracting from the destruction of the Syrian state, of course, of Syrian society itself. And so constantly framing it as one side or the other winning really, in my opinion, ignores the fact that all sides have lost, all Syrian sides in the conflict have lost, because both the opposition and many people who don't identify with the government and who are against the government have suffered tremendously, and so has the government side. The government has lost tens of thousands of soldiers. The social base that supports the government has seen tens of thousands of young men killed, and you have a demographic in the social base of the regime of 18 to 35-year-old young men who have been killed, so they, too, have suffered. And fear further annihilation. But in many ways, this gets left out of the coverage that frames it as Assad versus the rest or Assad versus the opposition. You really miss the deterioration of Syria as a country and of state institutions themselves. I think Russia says that they're trying to problem up. In many ways, they're trying to support what is remaining. The sooner the war winds down, the better. I'm not so sure, however, that this type of intervention will succeed because the answer is not more bombing at this point the answer is serious attempts for a political transition that brings together the majority of the people who are opposed to the government but willing to actually sit down and be part of a transition even though they're opposed to this current regime and also people from the government itself and negotiate a transition that then begins to revive economic life begins to address some of the issues, of course, that are going to be remaining problematic for a long time.
2: You did talk about states' role in providing services. Let's talk about the military, and you kind of uh, touched on that. There are some analysts who cite the weakness of the Syrian military as one of the main reasons for Russia's military campaign in Syria. The strength of the regular Syrian army is estimated to have decreased from a pre-war figure of 300,000 to around 100,000. It's hard to estimate what it is now. This change has been ascribed to uh, desertions and losses. Another factor has also been noted. The sectarian nature of the conflict seems to have created a situation where the Alawites, uh, the Assad families, religious sect, are not willing to fight in the Sunni areas, but they're only willing to defend their own homes. What are your thoughts on this argument?
1: Well, certainly there's been a transformation of... The relationship of the central government to its social base from an economic, political, military sense, and the government army itself has also transformed. Some of it are ways that we can notice. Some of it are ways that it's going to take while to actually understand and absorb all the changes that are happening because they're rapid and we get our information from many different sources, but we don't have the capacity to really study this in great detail. But I think it's safe to say several things based on what we know so far. And one is the fact that, that I just mentioned a couple of minutes ago, that yes, there has been a great loss uh, from the army. Some of it has been to defection. Some of it has been to people trying to leave and going to other places or fleeing to other countries. A lot of it and most of it has been from being killed by anti-government forces. And at the same time, we have to think about the transformation of the conflict itself. I think there's a big difference analytically and logically from four years ago when the government was fully in control, was fully powerful, and able to, in many ways, dictate the pace and scope of events. And today, where the government is surrounded by hostile forces from the north, coming from the Turkish side, from the east in ISIS, and from the south in the southern front, in the sense that they fear annihilation. They feel if they drop their weapons, they might be annihilated. Many of the people fight for the government. So Assad, in a sense, his actual power has effectively diminished because there's a proliferation of different militias and armed groups also fighting for the government. But his symbolic power is there, his symbolic power as a symbol uniting the government forces. In many ways, what you're saying is true. There are a lot of people who are defecting from the army today to go back and... They're not joining the opposition, but they're joining militias and other local defense forces in their neighborhoods. And to what extent this is happening, we don't know. We know it is happening, and it is signaling a sense of increased localism that you actually find happening all over Syria. It's really interesting if you go throughout the country now, also in opposition areas, a lot of the groups that are being set up in places that have been left by the government, there's a sense of attachment to that town and the local council and local governments in that town that are not really coordinating with any other towns or villages. They're independent units, in a sense. And part of this return to localism is because when the sort of fabric of society that was tying everyone together, when that is collapsing. People are seeking refuge and assistance in different or perhaps what you can call more traditional networks, whether they're kinship, clan, other affiliations, identitarian affiliations, religious affiliations, tribal affiliations in areas, of course, that have tribal formations, which are early in the East. So you see a lot of that happening, and we really don't know if this change is irreversible. We don't know the long-term impact But there are definitely a lot of these trends. Now, going back to the issue of the government, you see a lot of the government forces, the regular forces, also being complemented by militias coming from Iraq and elsewhere. Of course, uh, Hezbollah is fighting on the side of the government as well. So we don't also know exactly what is the outcome of these interactions. But we know that the government forces are diminishing. They're still present in several areas. They cannot last forever forever. And the latest intervention by Russia is further proof of that.
2: So since you mentioned fighters from other countries coming in, the Iranian regime and Hezbollah in Lebanon have both been staunch supporters of the Syrian regime throughout the political turmoil and the war in the country. Hezbollah forces are fighting, as you said, alongside the forces loyal to the Syrian regime, while Iran has at the minimum been financing and training fighters who are dispatch to help the Syrian regime. And these fighters seem to come from, as you said, Iraq and Afghanistan, too. In addition to that, the Iranian regime has been bankrolling the Syrian regime by giving it massive financial assistance. What effect or what impact has this role played by Hezbollah and the Iranian regime had on the balance of military or, or political forces in the country?
1: Sure. Well, I think, first of all, as a general statement, it's quite clear and safe to say that the regional intervention from all parties has exacerbated the conflict and has not been a positive force overall and that is because it removed agency really from the syrian people it hijacked a process that was an attempt by syrian society to address its own problems So I think that removal of agency and turning uh, social movement into a proxy war and into something that was fundamentally different is the biggest loss, that loss of popular sovereignty that was potentially there. And I think the legacy of that will haunt Syria for a long time. It's also the case that the Iranian regime threw in their support to indefensible, criminal, and illegitimate government in many ways that had spent decades in power monopolizing power in various ways, eliminating dissent and so on. I think, however, we also have to look at the situation leading up to 2011. I think one of the things I mentioned is that right before the Tunisian uprising, there was the WikiLeaks release, which talked about how a lot of the Gulf states had been agitating with the U.S. to further encircle Iran to bomb Iran, perhaps, to further put pressure and diplomatic isolation to Iran. So from early on, Iran basically made up its mind that its own national security is tied to Syrian national security, that regime collapse in Syria will be a further step in circling and laying siege to Iran. And so they decided to support it at all costs. And again, given that the conflict itself transformed from a situation where the government, if It wanted to, and I think if there was pressure on it to reform and to move towards radical change, could have done it. But by 2012, 2013, it had become an all-out war. And when it became an all-out war, that's when you saw Hezbollah coming in with full force and the role of Iran and Hezbollah transforming from providing diplomatic and financial support to providing military support. Of course, that has further exacerbated the sectarianization of the conflict. And I think it explains a little bit why Iran and the Syrian government would like Russia to come in, because the more Iran is in there, the more the Sunni-Shiite divide that is really being pushed, the anti-Shiite, anti-Alawi type of uh, agitation is being pushed by the regional Gulf states and dividing and polarizing Syrian society. So they want to pull back from that a little bit because of thinking about what might happen if they keep being involved, and they keep increasing their military presence. But overall, I think it's been further radicalizing the conflict. In many ways, it has had a positive effect in that it has balanced. There's a certain pragmatism. Here I'm talking about some of the micro dynamics of the conflict, of course. But in many ways, Iran has also put pressure on the government in various locations to make truces, to make ceasefires, to uh, allow opposition fighters to withdraw without being killed or attacked if sometimes they have been allowed to leave with their weapons. So that intervention has also had a sense of potentially being useful should Iran choose to pursue that path. And one of the things that they've been saying is, or claiming, we don't know how much that's true, we haven't put that to the test, but they've been claiming that If the opposition drops its demands to destroy the state, to overthrow the regime, and you stop the military attacks, then there's a way in which Iran would be able to put pressure on the regime to effectively have a transition. But it's difficult to do that because there are so many sides on the conflict. So if Iran and the government were to say that they would be willing to accept the peace process, can the other side deliver? Can the other side which has multiple militias fighting against the government, put an end to those attacks. I think that's what they have been saying as the reason why there is no one side to negotiate with. In some ways, that's obviously true.
3: And that's the voice of Omar Dohi, Associate Professor of Economics at New Hampshire College speaking with Shahram Agamir about the latest military intervention by Russia and the future of what remains of the Syrian nation-state. We'll hear more after a break. From Pacifica Radio, this is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. Stay with us.
2: We'll discuss the role played by other regional players in this conflict during our conversation. But before we get there, Syria's armed opposition is thought to number more than 100,000 fighters. It is made of a number of groups. Can you help us understand who is who in this conflict, perhaps some of the major players?
1: Sure. Well, if you look at the map of Syria that over the last two or three years, we see periodically different organizations putting a map of who is controlling what part of Syria. And actually, if you were to look at a map from two years ago, you would see many more colors than you see today, in a sense that you would see a lot of different militias, each controlling small spaces. This was in 2012, 2013, when you had a proliferation of many, many, many militias. What we've seen since then is a consolidation. And the consolidation has happened primarily in areas where ISIS grew, where ISIS was basically one of the many players in those areas outside government control. But when it was strong enough and what they felt themselves able to, they started consolidating and eliminating all of those other militias and taking over areas that used to be occupied by militias of different stripes. So a main... Part of that is ISIS, and we can talk more about it uh, if you like. Another area that has seen some consolidation are areas in the northeast of the country that are under the rule of Kurdish militias or Kurdish political parties. And that area has, in addition to ISIS and government-controlled areas, shares with those two other regions a sort of holistic governance system, where there's a more or less a monopolization on who's carrying weapons and sort of educational, economic, political, judicial sort of system that's integrated. And in many ways, this has led many people to believe that this is another step in achieving some sort of Kurdish autonomy, some sort of self-determination, and perhaps in the future, some sort of de facto or de jure political independence. Now, aside from those three regions, that is government, ISIS, and Kurdish areas, we have a variety of groups, but basically under two or three main titles. One is Jabhat al-Nusra, which is an Al-Qaeda-affiliated group. In many ways, their ideology does not differ than ISIS all that much. In some senses, they have been distinguished in that a majority of their leadership positions are Syrian, and that's not the case in ISIS. A majority of the leadership is Iraqi and from elsewhere. And majority of their fighters are Syrian. And they still have a belief, and this has been basically advocated by many supporters of the opposition, that they can be pragmatic. They can be brought along in the peace process. I don't agree with that. I think that despite the fact that many of them are Syrian they hold a political project that was neither inclusive nor really one that can be uh, thought of as a model, something that future Syria might be worth looking for. You have other groups, some groups like are called Ahrar al-Sham, Rajesh al-Fatah, Rajesh islam These are three different groups, some of which are more supported by Qatar and Turkey and others that are supported by Saudi Arabia. Those are considered neither al-qaeda, of course, nor ISIS, and they are what are referred to in many ways by the U.S. and by the other opposition as the moderate opposition. Moderate in the sense that they have a Syrian project, meaning they claim that they're fighting to overthrow the regime in Syria and install an alternative government in Syria, and as opposed to ISIS, that doesn't frame its project as something related to Syria at all. This is, they're creating an Islamic state. And there are a lot of people in the opposition who seem to be supporting these groups. So it's not true that they have no presence in Syria. But it's very limited, I would say. This is not what was originally called the Free Syrian Army, which was mainly made up of defectors and people from local units, people from Syrian society who were opposed to the government. Both the methods of these groups, both their ideology, their outlook, their professed political goals are something that are highly exclusionary in many ways, and difficult to see how they could be really part of an inclusive model for Syria.
2: Isn't that part of the problem that there is no cohesive and powerful opposition, be it inside or outside the country? Cohesive and united opposition? Yes, Yes. Yes.
1: Well, part of the reason for the lack of unity is the fact that a lot of the opposition has been driven, especially the external opposition and the armed groups, driven by alliances and de facto sort of proxies, uh, becoming de facto proxies of different regional powers. So you had initially the what was called the Syrian National Council, which was based in Istanbul, which in many ways, had very little independence from Turkey and Qatar. Increasingly, then Saudi Arabia started funding their own groups and split some of those oppositional groups, because Saudi Arabia was worried about the increasing influence of Turkey and Qatar, and so they wanted to balance within the opposition and within armed groups inside Syria, they wanted to balance those with groups that are loyal to them. So I think that's largely a reflection, not just, of course, as the opposition correctly says, of the regime banning and not allowing any independent political life inside Syria, but the fact that many of those opposition groups, talking about politically, have accepted the patronage and accepted in many ways the foreign policy agendas of those different regional powers, rather than try to form a political platform that is... Inclusive, that they could be addressing Syrians, that they could be convincing and sharing with other Syrians. And that's been a great negative, a great deficiency in the opposition's project because most of it has been really focused around convincing other powers and convincing the West to support them, to arm them, to topple the regime rather than building a political platform that appeals to other Syrians, which I think has been a major, major lack. The government, as the de facto power, has. A certain message. That message does not appeal to many Syrians, but it does appeal to many others. They have a stance. There's something that many Syrians know what it is, what's its pros and cons. And increasingly, many of those people who consider themselves loyalists, they're not loyalists because they love the government, but because they've looked at four years of the opposition trying to fight against the regime, trying to create an alternative, and they don't like that alternative that the opposition has created. And so they're not going to view the opposition as somebody that is desirable to rule over all of the country. And that's really reflective of the deep political divide that exists in Syria today. There are groups that, no matter what, will not accept Assad to rule over them and would rather perhaps even go to ISIS. Now, rhetorically, they say that. But the point is there are other groups as well who find Assad, yes, as the lesser evil. They've seen what the opposition has to offer, and they don't like it. And that's what happens in a civil war. It's a deeply divided society.
2: Recently, there have been, as you mentioned earlier, ceasefire agreements between the Syrian regime and the opposition in some localities in the northern part of the country specifically. Now there is a concern that Russian air raids will bring an end to such agreements and escalate the tragic crisis of Syrian refugees. Can we expect a deepening of the crisis because of the Russian air raids?
1: Well, I think yes. Overall, if it continues to be simply bombing and more bombing, then yes, it's a deepening of the crisis because of the fact that everyone who's on the ground, who is able to see the conflict dynamics and the divisions, as I said, can see that the answer is only through a political settlement and not a military solution. There may be a role after a peace settlement has been signed, after maybe some sort of peace agreement. There may be a role for international peacekeepers. We don't know how that might happen, but in a sense, if there is a deep lack of trust in society, it may be useful to have a third party come in and be able to keep the peace and respond to the security demands. However, that has to be after you sign the political solution, the political settlement, because of the fact that unless people, unless different sectors of society and different sectors of Syria have a buy-in to this presence, it will always generate resistance. And we've already seen, of course, civilian casualties from the Russian bombing. We've already seen displacement. And that's a rule. If you look at what actions lead to displacement of people, if you were to go back to the post-war period since World War II, there are different things that cause Displacement. They can be natural disasters and so on. But the one thing that always causes displacement, no matter what, is military intervention, is bombings. And that's what you can expect will happen in Syria. I think there's always this belief that if there's an overwhelming military attack, you might overwhelm those enemies and they're going to crumble and so on. But in fact, you're actually generating a cycle of violence that's going to continue. This happened in Iraq. It's going to happen in Syria, again, regardless of who's the one who's doing the bombing. And so in the same way that I would say a U.S. more direct military intervention would make things worse, I would say the same for Russia. There's no different. There's no reason to believe that one type of military aerial bombing would be more or less humanitarian than the other.
2: So talking about preserving the Syrian state, and we talked about what the Russian agenda of preserving the Syrian state may be. Do you think Russian intervention will be a game changer in the sense that it may succeed in undermining the opposition to the extent that any kind of political transition in Syria would lack any substance. In other words, it would essentially maintain the Ancien regime.
1: It's possible. I mean, there's definitely a very different phase now that the conflict won't be the same because the fact that the regional countries supporting the opposition have to contend with Russia before they were contending with Iran, which you could say, even though it's powerful, it remains a regional player. It's not a superpower at the global stage. And the only country that could presumably be a response to Russia is the U.S. And so the U.S. is not interested and in many ways is happy to let Russia take the lead and solve it if you can. That seems to be the attitude of of the U.S. leadership, despite the fact that they're Critiquing this, I think they'd be very pleased if Russia was able to impose some sort of settlement, given the statements over the past couple of years. I think that preserving the old regime might be difficult because of all the changes that we talked about in terms of what's happening in Syrian society. It may be the case that we have a different type of system, neither better nor worse. It has much more decentralization of power due to the proliferation of arms throughout society. It will have less of an ability of the central government to impose its will on different areas than it used to have before. And I think that it'll be a mistake if they think that they can impose stability in, in that way. Uh, they might claim that they're wanting to preserve Assad. But all the statements that they've made, at least outwardly, seem as, as well as Iran, seem to indicate that they're willing to oversee a political transition of some sort. Now again, We know that a lot of this may be rhetoric, and whoever wins the war, if there's a decisive victory, uh, will be able to dictate the terms. But I don't think there will be a decisive military victory, despite what Russia is, is trying to do.
2: Who has been targeted? The Russian government made it clear last week that it was going after a list of groups in addition to ISIS. And it's saying the targets are chosen in coordination with the armed forces of Syria. So who has been the target of Russian airstrikes?
1: Well, I think it's pretty clear that their main targets are not ISIS. They have been going to a variety of armed groups that include some of the groups that I mentioned, including Al Fatah and perhaps al-Nusra. And if you take a step back, I mean, what is the ideal scenario that the Syrian government and its allies will have at this point? Ideal meaning the best possible one. Give all things considered. The ideal one is to have two dominant groups, the government and ISIS. And that is because ISIS has been recognized as a problem by the whole world. And it's a problem for Syria as well as the whole world, meaning the Syrian government. On the other hand, these other groups are supported by many different groups and are not recognized as a problem. They're recognized as moderates and forces worth supporting. So they pose a problem for the Syrian government and its allies only. Eliminating them will set the stage for the Syrian regime and ISIS to be the only two choices, at which point the Syrian regime will become the de facto power and there will be an international coalition uh, to eliminate ISIS. And In fact, the U.S. just today in the New York Times is sort of saying that they're going to step up attacks against ISIS. So I think it's rather clear, and in fact the Syrian opposition is saying this, they're saying, look, they're not going after ISIS, they're going after us the moderates. Now, this is the label they give to those other groups as moderates. But I think they're right in that the Russia's targeting has not been primarily directed at ISIS at all.
2: Let's go back to this question of uh, regional players and international players in any sort of attempt to forge a, a transitional government or peace process. Turkey is a major stakeholder in this. How would uh, Turkey and Saudi Arabia, and Qatar to a lesser extent, react to uh, such a scenario in which the opposition will be essentially weakened or undermined to a certain extent that they will not be a major player in in any sort of political transition. Turkey, of course, is going to play the refugee card with the Europeans. They have other cards to play as well. So how do you think this will play out?
1: It's hard to say exactly. We can look at their reaction right now, and it's been very critical of the Russian intervention. At the same time, Turkey has a variety of interests with Russia that go beyond Syria that include oil and natural gas and other forms of regional cooperation and and regional blocs. So when it comes to Turkey and Iran, Turkey and Russia, they have a variety of commercial and political and geopolitical interests that extend way beyond uh, Syria in particular. So there's likely to be severe differences of opinion over Syria while there's cooperation on other avenues. Of course, Turkey is not happy to see its influence diminished. In many ways, uh, Turkey has been the de facto power in the very north of Syria, has you know, great support to a lot of the fighting groups that are now being targeted by Russia. So a lot of this targeting of armed groups will result, if they're eliminated, will result in the diminishing of Turkish influence. But I think, by nature of geography, commercial weight, political weight, Turkey is always going to play a major role in Syria. In my opinion, there is not a major fear that Turkey has of being completely cut out. I think they will they will have a seat at the table when it comes to a regional settlement. Uh, for those reasons, that's not the case for the other players, such as the Gulf countries. I think. A lot of what they have tried to do is get a foothold in Syria through arming, through funding, and that is something that may cause them to be even more upset than Turkey about this. On the other hand, there's very little that they can do at this point because it's no longer Iran they're confronting, it's, it's Russia as well. Uh, so I think it would be interesting to see what Saudi Arabia does to respond to this, given the fact that, of course, Saudi Arabia is carrying out its own pretty deadly and destructive attack in Yemen. And, you know, in many ways trying to say that, well, we're going to take over Yemen and regain our influence over Yemen and drive Iranian influence out. Of course, regardless of whether that influence was real or created, imaginary, but it might be some sort of way in which they, uh, they give up or they diminish their foothold in, in Syria and gain that in, in Yemen.
2: In any sort of a political transition process that may happen in the future, Do you think it would still include Mr. Assad?
1: I think it's highly plausible that he will be part of the transition. As I mentioned earlier, he has much more symbolic power than he does effective power. The government itself controls a small strip of Syrian land at this point. It relies heavily on its external backers. So what actual power Assad has is uh, really questionable, and I think it's, it's important for us to decenter the discussion from him. However, given the fact that a lot of countries have taken a forward position on Assad, and part of the reason that, for example, Turkey has really doubled down in its support for the opposition is because politically they would seem very embarrassed if they were to have taken such a ex- you know, forward position on Assad and then have to back down, I think they might accept a greatly diminished role given the fact that there's a sense that the regime is going to stay in one form or the other it might be the case that he plays a role in the transition so as not to appear as if you know that government was defeated right his departure now would indicate a surrender or a defeat for the government and they don't think they're in a position to be defeated that you know why should they surrender but ultimately it may be the case that there's a transitional period which changes the syrian political system perhaps you have Power sharing agreements. Perhaps you have moved towards a parliamentary system, uh, and at the end of that period, you know, however long it may be—one, two, or three years—there there may be national elections of which he may or may not be a part of. I can see that scenario as being acceptable to those powers, and to some extent also acceptable to many Syrians who are exhausted from the war, who just want things to end. Whether they're refugees, whether they're internally displaced people, the people who are really bearing the brunt of this conflict they want it to end. They just want some sort of resolution. And if they can see some hope of a new phase where they can regain their economic livelihoods, where they can you know, not be harassed or persecuted if they were return to Syria to return to their homes, I think based on what I see, they would, they would find it acceptable. There are many others who won't, but I think a large number of people will.
2: So Omar, I just wanted to ask you this. This is not as related to our, what we have been discussing. There's this issue of Syria's Electric grid mainly or ostensibly is running on natural gas. And a good source of this natural gas is located easterly of Homs. And that could be possibly a target for the ISIS uh, fighters. The shutdown of the electric grid could be devastating to the regime itself. Is that something that the Russians might have been considering as a real menace to the...
1: Well, yes, of course. Of course. I mean, in fact... uh not only could be a target for ISIS, it has been a target for ISIS, and they have taken some natural gas fields. And if you look at the takeover of natural and oil gas fields that ISIS has had, they have deprived the regime of great sources of wealth, and also relying on electricity and others. So they've they've certainly hurt the regime in pretty real ways. In addition, of course, to you know the killings of many regime soldiers, and adding on to that, the symbolic significance of the takeover of Palmyra, which is more than just an archaeological site for many Syrians. It's part of of their collective identity, a collective pride. So they've really dealt major blows to to the regime in that sense. And I think that's a big factor, especially because even in the best circumstances, so if you look at Damascus, electricity um, uh, sort of consumption and, and service has been greatly deteriorated. You have electricity coming for two hours and then cut for four hours each day, just day after day. And if you look at the summer months, which are incredibly hot, you know, the possibility of fans and air conditioning is, is not there for, for many people, for you know, even the middle class, the people who live in Damascus. Uh, and so the idea is that that sense of normalcy that the regime has been trying to give at least to large sectors of its population under con- its control is uh, being wiped away. They no longer are able to continue functioning as normal. And the more that time goes on, their ability will be less and less.
2: Is there anything else you would like to add to what we have just been discussing?
1: Oh, thank you for, for uh, giving me a chance to talk to you and, and for your questions. I mean, I, you know, one of the things that I am constantly working with is the issue of the refugees and the internally displaced. Uh, this is something that is suffering on many fronts, not least of which is the funding. I hate to uh, talk in this sense, but you know, we need support, we need funding, we need people to reach out and try to help in some way for for this great crisis. It's not just Syrian refugees, of course, we have Palestinian and Iraqi refugees, you know, the Middle East is now the largest holder of refugees in the world and and others as well. So, you know, I would urge people, this is one thing that people can concretely do here uh, about this crisis is to support that that aspect of it.
2: Can you give us some uh, idea how people can go about supporting the refugees? Are there specific information that you want to provide to our listeners?
1: I would urge them to financially support in terms of very reputable organizations I would say Doctors Without Borders uh, has been doing a great job. There are other local organizations but Doctors Without Borders that you know just suffered attacks in both Syria and by Russia and by the US in Afghanistan. They do a good job not only because they provide different types of health uh, services, but they also train the local population to provide services for itself, and they rely on capacity building in quite very meaningful ways. So I would find personally, based on my experience and based on everything I've read about them, they deserve a lot of support, and they're internationally established, so you know they're trustworthy in that sense.
0: Omar Dahi is an Associate Professor of Economics at Hampshire College. He also serves on the editorial committee of the Middle East Report and is co-editor of the Syria page for Jeda'liya e-magazine.
3: From Pacifica Radio, this is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. You can always reach us via our website at vomenaorg blog or send us an email at infovomina.org. You can friend us on our Facebook or find us on Twitter at twitter.com/slash vomina underscore radio.